From WNET in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart, and this is WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our programs. American Masters is now in its 31st season on PBS, continuing its tradition of excellence by presenting films on our cultural history, as well as breaking a lot of new ground. And with us now and recently beginning his fourth year as the program's executive producer is Michael Cantor. Michael, welcome back to WNET Up Next. Thanks, Tom. You, you mentioned four years. I always like to joke that if a woman can gestate a child in nine months, you should be able to make a documentary film that quickly. Yes. But what do you do in four years? Oh, my God, I can't believe it. But you've done some wonderful things in the last few years. And shortly after we spoke about a year ago, you announced some new creative initiatives for American Masters. And we're hoping that you'll fill us in on what's been happening with that and what's coming up. And the first one I want to ask you about is American Masters Pictures. What exactly is that? And how does it expand upon what you've done in the past? More and more, there's been a demand for documentary films in festivals and, in fact, in theaters, theatrical uh, release as well. So when our Janis Joplin film played in hundreds of cinemas around the country and, in fact, around the world, it occurred to me that we should have a banner under which we release films theatrically mm -hmm. and in festivals so that people would immediately know this is a film from American Masters that's playing in your in your local movie theater. And we could have just used the word American Masters Films, but my mother-in-law, who was a film producer of note, always uses the word picture when she describes a movie. She says, mm -hmm. oh, that's a little picture. Oh, that Titanic was a Makes big me think picture. Makes think of RKO. Yeah, exactly. RKO pictures. pictures. So it felt that that word implies cinema and mm -hmm. movie theaters. Mm -hmm. So that's how we came up with the name, and we launched... American Masters Pictures in January of 2016 at the Sundance Film Festival. That's great. Now, uh, also last year, you were telling us about something called The Chef's Flight, a series of biographical films on some of America's great culinary figures of the 20th and 21st century. They're going to be on the air soon, and every time I think about them, my taste buds immediately start to go to work. I think there are four films being shown. James Beard, Julia Child, Jacques Pepin, and Alice Waters. I've had a chance to screen all of them. As a group, they really describe the evolution of the role of food in our culture. So a filmmaker out in Portland, Oregon, Beth Federici, came to our offices and said she's making a film, the first film, about James Beard. And the subtitle of the film was America's First Foodie. Beard, the first televised chef, wasn't so much a chef as a as a foodie, a connoisseur of food, and he developed the idea of farm-to-table. In fact, the Four Seasons restaurant, which he helped to create, took this idea. It never occurred to me Four Seasons restaurant was reflecting food from each of the different seasons. Anyway, it occurred to me because American Masters had produced two films previously, one on Alice Waters and one on Julia Child, that we should build a little flight of chefs. And I feel like we've come up with what I call the Mount Rushmore of American culinary greats. And these folks, in particular Jacques Pepin, James Beard, Alice Waters, and Julia Child, they took America's penchant for frozen food, grab something from the freezer and 
add some soup to the tuna and make a casserole and really elevated our palate in a way that we all now take for granted and enjoy. I got the sense that in the post-war area, food preparation was considered sort of a burden for the housewife, and all of these frozen food things came to pass. And uh, the idea of it becoming something that people really want to do and enjoy and uh, prepare food and spend time with food is something that really has developed over that time period. And these folks just really transformed that with their ideas. Well, James Beard, I think, made it okay for men to to be in the kitchen, and that's important. And Jacques Pepin, who came over to the U.S. prior to my being born, he was formerly the chef for Charles de Gaulle and other major figures in France. He was offered the prime position of being the chef at the White House for the Kennedy administration. Mm -hmm. Think about that. And he turned them down instead to run Howard Johnson's. Great story. A period of a decade. So I think America's always been obsessed with speed in every area of our culture, but speed in food preparation, speed in, you know, let's just microwave that up. James Beard and Jacques Pepin, along with the others, really changed it so that we've come to enjoy cooking. We still enjoy fast food, no doubt. But we're sensitive to the freshness of the ingredients and finding local ingredients and this idea of farm-to-table, and we can credit them. More willingness, I think, for people to try new things. I think it used to be with the food business. People wanted to be sure this is the standard uh, Swanson's chicken dinner, which is always going to be the same thing, and people put a lot of credence in that. I think still with fast food, people expect a certain kind of burger in a certain kind of way, but this movement really opens it up for people to be much more adventurous, I think, in what they do with food. Well, that Jacques Pepin took Howard Johnson's, which was using a lot of artificial ingredients, and he brought fresh ingredients to America on a mass scale. And then, of course, in his books, uh, La Technique and La Methode and so forth, he teaches you how to prepare things so that you don't feel like, okay, I've got the fresh ingredients, but what do I do with them? And these were photo books, actually. Yeah, these are... I I liken him to a magician. You marvel at what he does, but he's a magician who's giving away his tricks and Mm -hmm. teaching you how to do the tricks at the same time. But I wanted to share with you, I was at an event once for WNET where Jacques Pepin was the guest of honor. And as part of the program, he uh, deboned this chicken. And again, it was in the idea that he would be teaching this to those of us present. But he did it with such artistry and speed. And I, I just was going... You know, I don't think I could ever really do that like like like, like he does that because it was like a little work of art just to watch him do this. It's a lot of practice, but when he uses a knife on a stick of butter to create a little flower or or carves out the inside of a tomato to create a, a mini sculpture, you can learn it. It's right. amazing. And, of course, he and Julia Child, I think and to a lesser extent James Beard, Uh, media personalities. James Beard had a cooking show, I learned, on NBC. I believe it was called I Love to Eat, which I thought that's that's the greatest (laughs) name for a cooking show that you could possibly have. But he didn't really have a telegenic presence. It kind of comes out, and he becomes a great friend of Julia Child, who did have that in spades. 
And here in public media, uh, Jacques Pepin, Julia Child, they are great heroes of ours in terms of our programming and in terms of what we've brought to people over the years. Yeah, a lot of us grew up with Jacques Pepin or Julia Child in our living room teaching us about food and cooking. Alice Waters, I think of as a, as a true revolutionary. What she's most interested in doing now, having created her amazing restaurant Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California, is to create this idea of the edible schoolyard, a place where kids, as part of their school classes, will go and tend a garden and then harvest uh, lettuce and vegetables and so on and create their own lunches, which is amazing when you think back to the Reagan era when ketchup was considered a vegetable. Oh, yes. um, and I know our former first lady, Michelle Obama, was very instrumental in promoting that in her years in the White House, did a lot of uh, those events. I think Alice Waters created the first organic garden at the White House in the Clinton years, prior okay. to the Obamas. But um, anyway, she's, she's always an inspiration. And I know that earlier this year you premiered the story of the wonderful Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. And aligned with that program, another initiative, which is called Inspiring Woman, which is at hashtag Inspiring Woman PBS. What's that all about? Well, the Maya Angelou film premiered at Sundance, and thanks to our corporate sponsor, AARP, it was part of a program called Movies for Grownups. So it was seen, I think, in 40 cities around the country prior to it airing on PBS. And the Inspiring Woman campaign is simply to expand the idea that there are women who've meant so much to each and every one of us. And when we share their stories, we feel better about our own lives. We learn from other people's lives. And, and we've created a website which kind of gathers up those different stories. It was kicked off by Maya Angelou's own story. And it's meant to be bracketed by the upcoming films we have on Lorraine Hansberry and Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. So we have this great triumvirate of legendary African-American women writers who, of course, were doing very different things. But within that, we're encouraging people to go to our website, look at the Inspiring Woman campaign, pbs.org slash American Masters, hashtag Inspiring Woman PBS. It's a place where you can share these amazing stories for others to appreciate. So if anybody has a, uh, a relative, a friend, or anyone who's been a great influence, a woman who's been an influence in their life, their, their stories can go there. My favorite story is about this Iranian-American woman astronaut. So go to the website and learn about her and, and, and the challenges she's overcome. Very interesting. Another parallel achievement of your past year has been a podcast, American Masters podcast, featuring a lot of wonderful interview material from the past and a, a host that I know you're very well acquainted with. Well, the podcasts are fun. I, I'm realizing now I took a very, I don't know, stentorian approach to introducing and, and sort of doing the wraparounds for the podcast. Right? Yes, that happens sometimes here. I, I, this year and you I'm realize gonna, it's all wrong. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to try and be much more like today, much more casual. And, you know, it's tough when you're introducing... Gloria Steinem or Billie Jean King or some major figure in our culture not to want to give them props and and sort of sing their praises in a very formal way. But I think I've learned that the podcast mode itself is much more casual. It's more intimate. I think yeah. people just want to hear conversations. 
Now, another project you have in addition to the podcast is called In Their Own Words, and this is the American Masters Digital Archive. And I understand there's a, a great wealth of information and material there. Well, when I came here uh, just over three years ago, I realized I felt that the most valuable asset that American Masters owned and maybe the station owned was its collection of interviews with people like Ray Charles or Gloria Steinem or Lena Horne. Some of those folks aren't around anymore to tell these stories. And they were sitting in boxes in storage on many on formats that have long since disappeared. So we sought grant money and got a grant from the National Endowment of the Arts and have been digitizing those old tapes and making them available on our website. And that's phase one of the, in their own words, mm -hmm. digital project. Phase two is to map them so that if you type in country western music and Ray Charles, you'll go right to him talking about country western music. Amazing. So that's the more sophisticated part that we haven't yet gotten to. But all the interviews have now been digitized and bit by bit we're bringing them forward and we're going to create hopefully something that will not just work well for American masters but will kind of set the pace for these kinds of websites. And my understanding, too, is that these are complete interviews. These are not necessarily just clips that were part of an American Masters episode. These are, are full. I'm certain they're edited in some way, but they're the full interview with the personality. Yeah, you get a minimum of 20 minutes where you're sitting with a Mike Nichols or a Patti Smith or whomever it may be. Uh, so it's very powerful stuff. You know, we think of American Masters originally as a television series, but as you've indicated with the American Masters pictures and other things that are happening in our culture, the consumer of video today seems to want to experience it not necessarily on a television set. Online sources, quite often uh, people watch things on their telephone. I shouldn't even call it a telephone. I believe mobile phone. They're mobile or on a tablet. And this kind of evolution has to change how you think about your films and how you want to get them seen by the largest audience. How is that working out? Well, I just personally wouldn't want to watch, say, a two-and-a-half-hour feature film on my phone. It just wouldn't be a satisfying experience. Maybe your that, iPod, though? The you know, iPod? No, I think no. that's why people get big screens at home, because okay. they enjoy okay. that experience. So it makes sense that we can to use the kind of corporate slang, leverage the American Masters brand okay. in all these different opportunities, whether it's on your phone where you can listen to a podcast, on TV as part of the PBS schedule, in cinemas as part of American Masters pictures, or on the web where digital archive of important interviews is showcased. So you're covering all those different... Uh that's the other word I'm very fond of and like to say and sometimes in quotes, platforms. Well, I think PBS has always prided itself on, on quote-unquote, being more. You know, be more. It's inspiring you to be more. Yeah. And public television has never been only about the program. There have always been educational resources tied to the Absolutely. programs, community outreach. So all of our initiatives are just tying into those, those core PBS values. You know, this is kind of a challenging time for all cultural institutions here in this country. Could you reflect a bit about how those times are affecting 
your work with American Masters. I'm thinking particularly of the proposed uh, federal funding cuts of the NEA and the NEH and PBS, all very important in the work that all of us do. Well, there's no question right now a number of our projects have funding from, for instance, the National Endowment of Humanities. Right. We're proud of that. We think that when you f win a grant from the NEH, they're very tough to get, and it's an imprimatur that you've done your homework, that you're creating new research on something that's important. So hopefully across the country people feel that same way and are signing up for Protect My Public Media and other organizations that are expressing that viewpoint and that when push comes to shove, the government will recognize the value of public television and public media to the country as a whole. How that's going to play out, who knows? Um, my dad always told me, if you do a great job at something, it doesn't matter what you do, people will appreciate it. Yeah. So I'm just trying to do the best I can at my job, and hopefully both politicians and, and a broad and diverse national audience will appreciate the work we're doing. Absolutely. What I was taught was something like 12 to 15% of public television funding comes from the government. And the rest is matching funds from foundations and individuals like you, uh, viewers like you, and, um, and corporations and so forth. So I think when everyone wakes up to that idea that this is actually a money generator, that for a tiny bit of money, if you could buy a television for 12 cents on the dollar, you'd be jumping up and down, that um, it's worth it and, and people will see that uh, there's great value in it might say it's a great investment. There you go. You know, traditionally, an American master's film has been about an individual, usually someone from the past. And I know that you have the idea that you'd like to consider more living masters. What's behind that thinking? Well, I just think, of course, they're great masters who've passed on and we want to tell their stories. But if you follow around a Norman Lear, for instance, and Maya Angelou, who died close to the end of the production process on, on her film, it, it breaks up the sort of formulaic nature of a historical documentary. It's still history. You're still weaving in things that they did 30 or 40 years ago. But you can follow them when they appear on Jon Stewart or now uh, Trevor Noah or Jimmy Fallon or what have you. And, and they might be outwriting in a hotel room or maybe out in a meadow somewhere. And that's interesting. And that's the kind of material that if somebody's passed on, you, you don't always have access to. A wonderful variety. Well, so many opportunities. I don't know how you focus in on a couple because it just seems the world is full of potential American masters films. That's the hard part. It's sort of like back to the chef's flight. It's kind of like going to a, an amazing restaurant and trying to figure out what are you going to choose and in the case of public television, you have a limited budget. Limited <laughs> budget. You can't just get everything and tr try one taste. You have to go to the early bird special or some other <laughs> reference like that. What's coming up? Upcoming are, are amazing films. The, I think the youngest American master ever presented, Richard Linkletter, the, the great film director of Boyhood, among other things, and the, the trilogy Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, Before Midnight, etc., Edgar Allan Poe, we're revisiting that great American literary icon in a film that will likely air right before Halloween. Okay. And Bob Hope. Um, Bob, Bob Hope, Hope, supported by a National Endowment of Humanities grant, will air in December. 
I think a lot of us who grew up with Bob Hope at the tail end of his career, kind of post-Vietnam, saw a very different Bob Hope than the people who saw him in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So it will be an interesting challenge to present both sides of Bob Hope. As I mentioned, the Lorraine Hansberry film is uh, reaching completion, and it's a very powerful piece on the playwright and writer who, um, of course, did Raisin in the Sun on Broadway. We've also got a, a very strong film on Itzhak Perlman, the oh, violinist. Wonderful. So having presented Yasha Heifetz a couple of years ago, now we're moving ahead in a generational way to today's master violinist. Very funny guy. That's the, the, yes, that I've was had, the I've surprise. Had the, I've had the pleasure of Itzhak Perlman. So many people have the misapprehension that classical musicians are long hair and dour. He is a delightful, witty man, full of life and humor. Uh, Wonderful. Looking forward to that one very much. Another film that I'm very excited to present is Tyrus Wong. The subtitle is simply Tyrus. Tyrus was a relatively unheralded Chinese-American artist whose journey from the kitchen, essentially, working in the kitchen of a restaurant to creating the look of Bambi, the movie Bambi at Disney, is remarkable. He designs kites. He, Once you see his style, you'll recognize it because it was very popular on holiday cards, Christmas cards. But his story of overcoming the obstacles of being a Chinese-American in the 1930s and onward here on the West Coast uh, is very moving. So um, right now, I believe Tyrus will be airing in September. Mm-hmm. And you're on all year long. American Masters has no particular season, either spring, summer, fall, winter. It's, it's all, all year long. We present 12 programs a year. And what I've been trying to do is cluster them, like the chef's flight. So you have a group of like-minded films together. But sometimes they're more in the spring or more in the fall. We don't have a, a particular slot on a... Tuesday of every month. Right. And hopefully, by clustering them, it brings more attention to that cluster. And I didn't point out before, Chef's Flight is coming up on May 19th, I believe, with the James Beard and the companion film, which I think is Julia Child. I think it's James Beard, Julia Child. The next week is Jacques Pepin, on the 26th, Jacques Pepin and uh, Alice Waters. Absolutely. May 19th for the first two, James Beard and Julia Child, and then May 26th. For the latter, Jacques Pepin, Alice Waters. Mm-hmm. Michael, thanks so much. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you here. And oh. we look forward to everything coming up uh, in the new season of American Masters and many more years down the road, four, five, six, uh, however long it takes. Thanks so much. We hope you join us again soon for another edition of WNET Up Next. And please share your thoughts with us at upnext at WNET.org. Tell your friends about us. And, of course, do become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the design and on-air promotion department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart, and thanks for listening. <laughs>